hello, everybody. This is Mrs. Norman Maine. I pledge allegiance. To the band. It may perhaps discourage you, unless of your kidney or infected with this vicious virus, that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of seventy-five pounds. I'll pay now to go for it. Just make ten louder and make ten be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys are eleven. Welcome to Movies That Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald. And today, I have my co-host, Dave Finn, back to have part two of our special series on A Star is Born. In the last episode, we took a look at the 1937 version with Janet Gaynor and Frederick March, and the 1954 version with Judy Garland and James Mason. In this episode, Dave and I are going to go off the deep end and discuss the 1976 version of A Star is Born, starring Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson, as well as the latest 2018 version starring Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. As a warning to listeners, this episode will contain spoilers in the second half of the episode. We were completely spoiler-free in part one, and in this one, that will not be the case. So if you haven't seen any of the movies yet and would like to, you might want to turn it off when you get there. So without any further ado, here's Dave Finn and I for part two of A Star is Born. We're going to go on to the 76th third incarnation of A Star is Born, (laughs) starring Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. Watch closely now. You'll observe it. Yes, and now we're getting into the rock and roll territory. We're moving on from Hollywood. Well, now we're moving on from Hollywood, but we're moving on from the film industry. Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson, and uh, this was a monster hit. This was a smash hit for Babs. <laughs> and I know you had something that you wanted to say to kind of introduce us to it. Uh, yeah, I just want to talk about the screenwriting. I found this uh pretty detailed account of the whole production process of this version mm. on um, American Film Institute site. Oh, and, wow. Uh, so this movie came out in 76, but the genesis of it is that in 1973, Joan Didion, who's a famous writer, and her husband, <clears throat> John Gregory Dunn, had the idea that they could make a rock and roll version of A Star is Born using this new phenomenon of you know rock and roll the whole touring lifestyle and stuff like that. By using A Star is Born as a template, they could tell a story about the harsh, destructive world of rock and roll. Yes. <laughs> um, they spent a total of three weeks touring with Led Zeppelin, <laughs> Uriah Heep, and Jethro Tull what? to research <laughs> the rock industry. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> and, nuts. Like, oh, my God. Like I like all those bands, but, geez, to hang out with Led Zeppelin in 1976, like backstage – could you Would imagine be Uriah Heep? <laughs> You're right. right. Yeah, that's uh, such a weird mix. And to then extend that to think like, wow, Chris, Chris 
Rosten is supposed to represent that. I know, right? Music world. Uh, but I will say there is a fair amount of authenticity, I thought, in this movie about the rock and roll yeah, scene. A lot of good absolutely. backstage drama mm-hmm. and a lot of just like the day in and day out of touring, arriving to gigs, setting up equipment, dealing with crowds, dealing with security, like all that kind of stuff. Some of the more like practical hands-on aspects of touring musicians and recording. There's a fair amount of stuff yeah. set in recording studios. So I found it fascinating that the genesis of this version was from the screenwriters. They wrote this script, shot it around, and they originally wanted to have Carly Simon and James Taylor. I saw that. And that I, I, that were a couple boggles like, my mind. at the time, maybe, or they had been a couple. And that is a fascinating version to imagine. Wow. I can't see them carrying the movie of this weight. Oh, no. No way. Uh, have you ever seen Tulane Blacktop? I have seen Tulane Blacktop. So James Taylor is in that, and he's quite good in it, but he's mm-hmm. pretty soft-spoken. He is. Like, he doesn't radiate screen presence. No. But they pop this script around, and so at some point, John Peters, who <laughs> was the boyfriend of Barbara Streisand, they found it and thought, oh, it would be great for her to star in this. This would be a good vehicle for Babs. They initially considered Elvis Presley to play the lead. Yes, and she wanted him real bad. She wanted him, and I guess he turned it down because he didn't want to play a dramatic. Well, actually, I heard that he was very interested in the part, and it was Colonel Tom, and all Uh, his his infinite wisdom insisted that he would get a percentage of the film's royalties, and and Barbara and John were like, absolutely not, so they they scratched that off their list. It wasn't that he didn't want to do it. Right. It, Apparently, they went and like visited him oh, at his Memphis man. home and like showed him the script, and he was interested in potentially playing the role. That would have been amazing. That would have been a much different or, film. Or weird, I guess I should say. <laughs> it could have uh, been weird, but I think it would have been a much different movie, and I think it would have been a much deeper movie, despite yeah. from who he was oh, as a public right. figure at that point. Totally. Yeah. So between 73 and 76, there's a lot of shopping this thing around, trying to find directors trying to find leads at some point neil diamond was considered for the lead <laughs> at some point they wanted marlon brando to play the lead which yes is similarly insane yeah and um, i guess barbara loved marlon brando to the point of where she was willing to abandon the musical aspect of the movie just to have him oh be the God, leading yes. man i guess just in general about barbara streisand um i think she's got a great voice her pitch and her range is astounding as yes. a singer but i find her a bit of a goofball or a maniac <laughs> she's a very strange wise. public persona like i've got a handful of her records from mm-hmm. the 60s she was a big star you know like yeah, she was <laughs> she was already like a big recording artist live performer before she even started making movies and then she had a run of movies in the late 60s early 70s some of which yeah. did well yeah she got an oscar for funny girl ah okay playing fanny bryce ah i love what's up doc yes with uh, Ryan O'Neill, directed by Peter Bogdanovich, takes place in my home city of San Francisco. Yeah, and, and it it the, a, the uh, introduction to the world of Madeline Kahn. Exactly. That One of my heroes. Yeah. Pops up. It's like this madcap slash like Looney Tunes. It's really good. It is. And there's all these, all these practical stunts with cars driving through the streets of San Francisco doing all these crazy stunts mm-hmm. and stuff. And she's really charming in it. And it's like, I wonder why Sand thought she needed to make a vehicle. Or maybe that was John Peter's idea. I think it was boyfriend? John Peter. So I'm going to shout out to the this amazing podcast that I want 
anybody who's listening to this when they're finished to go and listen to this podcast because it's fantastic called you must remember this and there's an episode entirely dedicated to the making of this movie it's very informative yeah i think it was more john peters doing that wanted her to do the film she wasn't too jazzed about doing a star is born i think he put the bug in her ear and said how it would be a really good opportunity for her and particularly from a musical standpoint, she relented and decided to do it. Yeah, so the boyfriend, he famously was a well-known Hollywood hairdresser. Yes. <laughs> and you know, Rich Keese would come to his salon and get their hair done by him. And he was he was handsome and the lead character in Hal Ashby's Shampoo yes. is usually based on him. Warren Beatty at his sleaziest, but <laughs> charming. He is yep. charming. He is. And, I just recently saw that movie and I found it very entertaining. Me too. Um, I, I, I saw it a couple also, months ago. It's also a time capsule for oh, sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Of, you know, like early 70s. And LA. I love how there's a there's like a couple scenes where Beatles songs are played. <laughs> like Lucy and the oh, Sky yeah. with Diamonds and yeah. So post hippie, post Summer of Love, LA was like this free, free love society. So this yeah. guy's, yeah, banging around. <laughs> Married <laughs> ladies affairs and does you know he even seems to have like a regular girlfriend but he's yeah. still sleeping around and everybody knows he's sleeping around and that's like that's <laughs> and they just kind of go with it various women discovering oh he's sleeping with you too <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> and there's a uh, brief appearance by a carrie fisher mm-hmm. pre-star wars in that yeah she comes on to him in a very aggressive him. way <laughs> <laughs> actually it's funny just this, here, here's a tangent thinking about carrie fisher made think of Judy Garland because I thought of Debbie Reynolds. Ah, yes. I mean, she was working in the same genre as Judy Garland, but she didn't have nearly the troubled personal life and substance problems that Judy Garland do, and yet her daughter was a fuck-up. Isn't that strange? And it's almost like Carrie Fisher should be Judy Garland's daughter. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. in In a fan fiction world, like, from that right didn't Liza kind of have some issues too though like wasn't she like into the drug scene and all that I think so yeah yeah she had she's had her struggles yeah hell she's another one like how come she never made a star is born she'd be great she'd be perfect (laughs) yeah um oh wasn't Cher supposed to do this first wasn't she considered before Barbara Streisand I would believe it I think right before they offered it to Streisand they offered it to Cher and she rejected it so then they moved on to Streisand got it I don't remember now Peters had produced much before this, but the mm-hmm. idea is that he, you know, he started dating Barbara Streisand, who was this huge, well-established star, and yeah, he was probably referred to as <laughs> Mr. Streisand. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> a couple of times for sure. But he was riding her coattails. But he was ambitious, and he had enough connections to get this thing going finally through a lot of effort. I think at some point, Karina Longworth on that you remember this podcast claims that he was maybe not illiterate but that he didn't really read yeah i think he like left (laughs) school in middle school or something yeah so he did not direct this i guess they had a hard time finding a director and then the guy who ends up directing it is frank 
Pearson, who was most famous for Dog Day Afternoon, which is, what, a couple years earlier than this? Yeah, 75. He went to oh, pick the, up his Oscar uh, while they were filming A Star is oh, Born. Geez, you're right. <laughs> you're right. And Dog Day Afternoon is a gripping, torn from movie. the headlines drama. Outstanding um, film. It's terrific. Yeah. And it's it's heavy. It's a serious movie. It is kind of a shock that this is his next movie. Right. <laughs> Apparently, Streisand had a... She, like, took over editing the movie at some point. <laughs> yeah. She literally bought all the equipment, installed it in her house, and finished it on her own. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so the lead actress, Barbara Sant, plays the character Esther Hoffman. Yes. She's no longer Blodgett. No. She's Hoffman, <laughs> which is a little more Jewish-sounding, I guess. Right, right. Um, but as I said earlier, Esther is a classically, historically Jewish name to start with. So I don't know why she that did that. Different. <laughs> But, um, uh, and then Chris Christopherson is no longer Norman Maine, but is now John Norman Howard, which seems a little excessive to me. But it's the decade um, of excess, so I'll, I'll let it slide. Yeah, um, but Norman's still in there. It actually got me thinking about the meaning of that name uh, you know, from the first two movies, Norman Maine. is kind of like normal mainstream, the well-known star, and she's the oddball with right. Esther Logic. What a terrible, um, you know, an ugly sounding name that, you know, is barging her way into the mainstream. This is Norman Maine. So then the producer character is, in this case, a road manager. And it is played by a young Gary, Gary Busey. Gary Busey. Wow. That was a shock when I saw him on screen. Yeah. And his name now is Bobby Ritchie. Just two first names. Never a good sign. Um, <laughs> but Busey's in it a bunch, and he's good. Yeah, he's, he's like, fine. Well, I don't think he really is given all that much to do, but you know, he's supportive. Whatever. Yeah, he of is. The two of them. Then for some reason, there's also Paul Zersky plays Brian Wexler, who's mm. another agent. Yeah. And then there's a character named Freddie Lowenstein, who's a woman, <laughs> played by Joanne Linville, and the two of them are kind of amorphous, but they're on the production side of mm. John Norman Howard. They're part of that team. They're there. They pop in and out, but they don't do a whole ton. Interestingly, though, in that press agent role, who's kind of antagonistic to the male star, the Matt Libby character, in this movie is a radio DJ called Bebe Jesus. (laughs) It's just so great. Played by a guy named uh, M.G. Kelly, who I did not look at any other credits, but he pops up a number of times, kind of like a hype man except when he isn't when he's pissed off at john norman howard yeah he gets shot at <laughs> john norman howard that's right rifle at baby jesus who has descended in a helicopter <laughs> to a pool party wanting to get an interview with john norman howard who's with his friends and is drunk and he pulls out a shotgun fires it at this hovering helicopter oh my god it's so it's it's you know and again it's funny but it's also chris christopherson is playing a i think the most demented oh version far and away this guy is a brute i'll say overall i was impressed with christopherson i'm kind of so-so on him i've seen him in good movies Mm -hmm. but he's always kind of he's pretty low-key but i liked him in this i liked him more than barbara yeah i thought he was just okay Okay. I didn't find him particularly charismatic. Again, maybe it was just the film itself, but I thought he was just fine. I wasn't overly impressed, but I didn't think he did a bad job. If anything, like I bought his romantic attachment to her more than hers to him. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. Like, I think he delivers some good scenes expressing his affection towards her, Mm -hmm. whereas she... She's always Barbara Streisand she is. in this movie, yeah. and it could be argued that she's too big of a star to play this up-and-coming character. Like, and she comes on screen already in control and maybe a little arrogant. Oh, yeah, and she keeps that throughout the whole movie. I think that was my biggest struggle is her character was so self-assured and so independent-minded and so free-spirited that it was hard to buy the fact that she would want to be in a relationship with this man who was clearly on the down a downward spiral. Like, I just didn't believe that she would be willing to give that much of herself to this man. Yeah, but I, I liked their meeting up front. He meets her while he's drunk, and she's performing in this nightclub or something. With the Oreos. Will you welcome, please, the Oreos? Black, black widow is sitting in the middle of the web It's the fly she seeks You may be her lover, but you never will recover Cause she ain't had a fight for weeks You think you're the same cause you got the same name But the widow has a mobile home Remember what I told you, she got eight arms to hold you And she's never gonna let you roam she tuck you in the bed and truck on your head Then she'll wrap you as a midnight snack So if you see a spider, don't you sidle up beside her Why'd you think the widow's wearing black? You! Queen Bee, baby! The Oreos, which, yeah, I wrote down their names. It's two black backup singers with Babs in the middle, yeah. thus the cream filling of an Oreo. And, but those two singers are Vanetta Fields and Clyde King, who mm. are well-established backing vocalists. Huge careers. Wow. Credits on Bob Dylan records, Steely Dan records. They're independently and together have a lot of credits. I don't think they're ever given any lines. Maybe they are, but they're not so. really no. real characters. But um, no. but they, they do follow they her around throughout the film. They're on stage I guess with her. Right. They're in the yeah, studio yeah, they with her. performing with her. Yes, yeah. right. Score one for inclusion of minorities in the Star is Born franchise. That's true. <laughs> That's Maybe. true. Um, uh, Judy did have a couple black tap dancers in that one musical sequence. You're right. Not blackface. That's what I was really dreading. Oh, During yeah, yeah, yeah. And the trunk sequence with Garland was like, oh, no. Thank God it didn't happen, yeah. Yeah. So he's listening to her singing and then this crazy uh, drunk fan who recognizes Howard, I'm sorry, I'm all over the place with naming him. Maybe I should just call him Christofferson. But yeah. he's trying to get an autograph or something. And Norman, jeez, oh, ends up <laughs> punching out the guy, yeah. uh, getting into a brawl and disrupting uh, the show. And at some point, Streisand gets him out of the club and they go into his limo and drive away. Uh, I just want to rewind very quickly that this movie starts out with an extended like concert sequence or even introduced to Barbara. And this is replicated in the Bradley Cooper version, where you see the crowd stomping their feet, waiting for the show to start. And then the opening titles come up and then the rock star arrives to the show. He's already drunk and in his limo. You tour through backstage on the way to stage and he starts performing and he's competent. He's Mm -hmm. drunk, but he's putting on a a good show. And that's how the movie starts. So at least in these versions, you're seeing the man in his element. He's not screwing up so much that his his audience has rejected him yet. But there's this quick scene in a limo with Gary Busey and uh, actress Susan Richardson. And I think they do some coke or something. And she seems like she's a groupie who's going to hang out, hang out to meet Norman afterwards. But Susan Richardson, I recognize her right away, was one of the daughters on Eight is Enough. 
Oh, no kidding. Who I had a huge crush on when I was a kid. <laughs> but um, this is a couple years I th- before It Is Enough, maybe. But mm-hmm. that's the only scene. But yeah. I found that using. After escaping from that nightclub, he brings pizza to her house the next day. That's right, for like, breakfast. Like, so once again, like she doesn't, she won't invite him in sleep right. over, even though he wants to. And thankfully, he's not a jerk about it. But they agree to meet the next day to have breakfast mm-hmm. together or something. I don't eat breakfast. Which is kind of (laughs) crazy. And I like that scene too, but she's still a little like standoffish to him of like, you're like a well-established big rock star. Why would you be talking to me? Then he takes her to Arizona in a helicopter (laughs) to to go see him perform. This was filmed at Arizona, er, sorry, Arizona Sun Devils Arena. And they staged a real concert with multiple artists, including Santana (laughs) and Montrose. And this is shout out to Pat Francis. You actually, because that's the band that Hagar was in during the limo drive. You hear a little bit of Montrose music. Really? They are given credit in the end credits, and no I think kidding. that's partially because this is a Warner Brothers film, and they mm. were Warner Brothers Records, so they were probably cheap to get for the soundtrack. You never see them, but they did actually play at this concert. He lands in a helicopter, <laughs> then they get into a limo or. But no, at some point, he gets on a motorcycle, right? Uh-huh. He's got, like, this biker gang hanging out backstage. Fans oh, yeah. This, I he guess. just, like, walks off stage. And he <laughs> jumps on this motorcycle, <laughs> is doing donuts in the parking lot or whatever, and then drives on stage on a fucking motorcycle. Through the crowd, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I got to admit, that was kind of badass. He was already performing, yeah. I guess. This was in the middle of the concert. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so he's brought his new date who right. just met him like the night before and it's like yeah. come see me perform <laughs> and then he acts like a madman she's like backstage just like what the fuck is this guy doing <laughs> yet i it, think i'm falling for him it's funny in this scene he invents judas priest because rob halford of judas priest used to ride a motorcycle. oh yeah so he's self-destructive and not only does he drink a lot he's doing coke I think he's doing pills, maybe. It's interesting. In none of these versions does the woman ever do drugs or drink. It's never stated that she's a teetotaler or straight edge, but you never see, maybe you see Gaga drink. The only time I think, it's she there. has a drink to calm her nerves before her first performance, but that's it. Right. So it's interesting, and, and I guess this happens in real life. Can you have a healthy relationship with somebody who's an addict if you're not doing it with them? Like, I can understand the having a good right, time together. right. That's got to be hard. You really would have to be devoted. Well, yeah. Why would you put up with that? And I guess that's kind of the message of all these movies is that Mm -hmm. the woman is wants her husband to get better. At a certain point, he wants to, too. But it's really after he's seen like the destructive aspects of his behavior. Later, he writes her name in spray paint on the wall. The previous two movies have this same motif of the man writing the initial of the couple like one carves it on a tree in the first one and then right. in the second in the garland version he writes it on the wall backstage something it's another like rom-commy thing that will reappear later in the movie to kind of mm-hmm. like show you like yeah these two used to be in love but now they're whatever now all this other shit has happened but this is the symbol of their young love john right begins to write a new song as he records it he is interrupted by the phone someone asks for and wants to know whether he is her secretary. <laughs> so that's that callback to yes. that uh, postman joke. Are you Mr. Lester? So emasculating. Yeah. Speaking of that emasculation thing, one of the notes I've got here is that during the, the whole pre-production of it, rewriting of the script, 
stuff was that Streisand wanted to beef up her role. Like as a woman in the mid 70s, post women's liberation movement, she felt like previous versions of the Esther character were too weak. So she wanted to make this new Esther more of a tough cookie, which I guess she succeeds in, but she ends up coming off a little too aggro. Yeah, and it, she was almost too independent for this man, like I said. Yeah. I had a hard time with that. I think it's yeah. great. It gave her more agency over her career, but at the expense of telling a logical story. <laughs> yeah. Because by the end of it, he came off as profoundly needy. Him. Him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to say, I guess, something about the music. Mm-hmm. You know, Aside from the very famous song Evergreen, which is a ballad, and it's co-written by the famous Paul That's Williams, right, yeah. who wrote Close to You, maybe, mm-hmm. for the Carpenters, and and had Various his own acting career. I recently rewatched Phantom of the Paradise, and I love that movie. And yeah. if you ever want that movie on this show, I will gladly do it. All right. But all the other songs in the movie are kind of forgettable. Very forgettable. Um, Absolutely. There is one good one that's written by Kenny Loggins, of all people. I Believe in Love. I think it's what it's called. It's kind of upbeat, disco-y. Up an empty eye, empty spaces where there used to be a soul inside. Nothing and no one ever gets to you. Seems the wind could blow right through you, believing in gods that never knew you. I believe in love. But it oh, seems yeah, that one's, mm-hmm. shocking that Streisand would put this much work and effort into making a musical and then not have the songs deliver. I kind of like every time she sings it in the club, it's like a ballad. That's the other one that sticks in my head. And obviously, Watch Closely Now is, was real popular. My dad, when we were going to see the new one, driving to the theater, he kept singing that song. But he was right. saying, it's, oh, I used to listen to that song all the time. That was my favorite. That soundtrack was amazing. I, maybe it's a generational yeah, thing. I, I don't know. I d- was tempted to indulge and get the soundtracks to these couple of versions, but mm-hmm. I just didn't feel I had the time. But yeah. And I guess, like, overall, like, Christopherson, you say you're meh on him in general as an actor? Yeah. Yeah. He, what he about as a singer? Less than meh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he can't carry a tune. Holy God. Exactly. Oh. You know, he's he's famous for having written a couple of great songs that became hits for other yeah. people. Me and Bobby McGee. Yeah. Help me make it through the night, which actually mm-hmm. his version is pretty well known, but really good, solid country rock tunes. Mm-hmm. But, man, like, oh. I can't. His pitch is terrible. It really is bad. He's a member of the Highwaymen with Johnny okay. Cash and Waylon Jennings and some other fourth guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> anytime he sings, it's bad. It'd be hard enough to harm Johnny Cash. Like He's got such a distinct voice. But, but then um, when you can't sing to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> but, right, exactly. So, yeah, I'm being more generous. I have a feeling I like this movie more than you did. Probably on, the, on, this, on this recent watching, yeah, just because I remembered it being boring or bad, so I was pleasantly surprised at how it's not that terrible. You know, I don't think it's a terrible movie, and I didn't hate it. I, mean, I wouldn't even say that I disliked it. I just thought it was okay. There were parts of it that I was bored by, other parts that I thought were great. So yeah, it was, I'm very in the middle on it. Yeah. Okay. So you see him perform live a number of times through the movie, and I was. Trying to put my finger on what is it that he's doing musically? Because he's kind of country, mm-hmm. but he's also kind of glam rock. There's this one song where he and the members of his band put on these rubber masks. Yeah, like that's Halloween so masks. weird. It's, like it's almost like Prague. Weird, like, 
Or, yeah, but it's, yeah, and it's like Alice Cooper. I guess yeah. that's what happens when it's you like tour with theatrical. Uriah Heep for months. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. That makes sense. Oh my god. Yeah, because uh, yeah, like that. And and Jethro Tull, the height of like their concept album shit. Yeah. Um, and so you know, and wearing tights and prancing around the stage and stuff. So yeah, so he's like this weird country rock glam hybrid with like poor vocals. How is this the representation of like successful mainstream rock it would have made more sense to have carly simon and james taylor up there it would have been more uh, authentic right neil diamond would have been perfect oh yeah because he's a an aggressive dynamic former but he decided instead to bring blackface back into the 80s with the jazz singer <laughs> right i've never seen that oh uh, is this its spiritual cousin yeah there's a okay. lot of similarities I, is it like just a couple years later maybe uh, 1980, that one came out. So four years after. But it's, it also is a vanity project oh, made hu- by a hugely Jew. Yeah. remake of an earlier movie with uh, and Al Jolson again. Jesus Christ. I know. That guy's pop everywhere. <laughs> um, imagine like Neil Diamond and Cher. Mm-hmm. That would sounds amazing. Like a mid-70s Cher, like at the height of her beauty. Oh, my God. That sounds awesome. Or even getting Still, Elvis. I don't know how his chemistry would have been with Babs, but yeah, right. The music is not great, and then the uh, yeah, the chemistry between the two of them. Like she's in her own movie, basically. Mm-hmm. It's almost like she doesn't really need him. I was finding his story interesting. What I little of it there was, <laughs> right? So now that we're in the music world, there's no Oscar here. There's the Grammy. What does he do when he shows up to her? Grammy. He doesn't punch her, does he? I don't remember it. I don't think he does. This was maybe the least dramatic. Humiliating? But the least humiliating, the least dramatic, yeah. He's just stumbling around and says something about like how he should be the worst performer and uh, uh, that stuff. Yeah. And, well, and Tony right. Orlando and Rita Coolidge. Yeah, Tony Orlando, right. yeah, it, was Christopherson's wife. Really? Yep. They are in a movie together, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which is a very good movie. Bob huh. Dylan's in the movie. Wow. Which is utterly bizarre yeah that's where uh, knocking on heaven's door okay so that's another movie that famously was cut down from its original length mm-hmm. and then decades later restored and then we'll see chris uh-huh. christopherson later his movie career sort of went downhill once he was in heaven's gates the famous uh, michael you cimino you haven't seen i it still haven't seen it. it's on hulu yeah, so yeah. i might well, we i'm gonna be watching it soon. on twitter and i i do i do recommend it even mm-hmm. though it is a bit of a bloated mess yeah i'll take turn out. you into a lover of christopherson yet <laughs> So it came out in 1976. It won mm. a bunch of Golden Globes. The yep, redheaded she, she stepchild won. of the Oscar. Right. But only won one Oscar for the best song. Forever. It had been nominated for four different Oscars. That's the only Oscar it won was for song. Keeping in tradition. Yeah. I did not look at the full breakdown, but I can't imagine that either of them would have been nominated for Oscar for best performance. No, but she was nominated for the Golden Globe for best actress. And I think the movie won for best musical comedy film, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, right. And that's a classic thing where the more crowd-pleasing, broad-heel movie wins a bunch of stuff at the Golden Globes, but gets stiffed by the Oscars. It's probably how it ought to be. That song, Evergreen, I have always loved it. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful song. It is a very nice song. I do like that song. And shout out to my cousin David, who proclaimed, seriously, one of my favorite songs ever. as an easy chair Love fresh as the morning air 
because I posted that as a single of the day last year. I found the B-side, the Kenny Loggins song, and I was like, oh, that's a catchy song. Yeah. Um, if only the rest of the movie was this fun. Right, but it's, right. a, it's a beautiful song, and uh, yeah, it's probably more famous than the movie. In 2006, there was a DVD that has a full-length commentary by Barbara Streisand. And there is also, I think more recent than that, was a restored version, which introduces a couple of scenes that were cut. And that was on Netflix for a while. Oh, yes, okay. It's not there anymore. It came out around the time the new movie came out. By the time I went to look for it, it was gone. I think I started to watch it and didn't finish it. And I think it's the highest-grossing movie of Bab's career wow it's pretty dated in a lot of ways but i think all of them are and i think the new one will probably end up being slightly dated as time goes by yeah i don't hate the movie it's i don't i don't love it but it's worth watching it's fun that podcast episode devoted to the making of this movie is very entertaining knowing the backstory of of a thing can help you appreciate a piece of crap which i'm not saying this movie's a piece of crap but it's generally, I think everybody kind of ranks it the lowest. And it's funny to think that if this new one hadn't come it would have been a trilogy. But somehow this new one balances them out. Each one is a variation on the one before. And there's something about the solidity of all four of them that I think strengthens the entire, I hesitate to call it a franchise. The <laughs> property, not, I guess. Yeah. The property. It was very rewarding watching all of them in succession. Seeing the echoes. Is yes. very pleasing. Then we're going to get into the newest 2018 version of A Star is Born, which is starring Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. What is Lady Gaga's real name? Stephanie Pe- Germanata. This is not her first movie. She's been in other movies before in small. Right. Like I think she's in one of those machete movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but um, I found it interesting that she went by the credit of Lady Gaga when her real name is out there you know not dissimilar to how when the rock started making movies dwayne johnson nowadays he tends to go by johnson rather than the rock now they have like childish gambino and um you know who i'm talking uh, about donald glover donald glover, glover yeah. thank you yeah which then leads me to think like maybe we're seeing a performance in this movie by lady gaga as an actress that that's mm-hmm. not stephanie playing ally that's Lady Gaga. Then there's a sense? distinct Did difference. You understand yeah. the distinction there? Mm-hmm. There's a double performance going on. So Bradley Cooper plays. So who? Bradley Cooper Jackson is Jackson Maine. Maine. So now we're back to Maine. Got mm-hmm. rid of Norman. Now he's Jackson. And, then, and he directed it too. He did direct it in his directorial debut. Another interesting history. Clint Eastwood originally signed on to direct it. And then... Beyonce was supposed to be the leading lady, which I could absolutely see happening. Amazing. They wanted various men like Leonardo DiCaprio or (laughs) like big name guys to play this, but nothing that seemed to have ever really taken. Until Bradley Cooper came on. I think he was still signed on when Eastwood was set to direct it. And then when he backed out, it turned into his passion project. Were you familiar with Bradley Cooper? Yeah, I'd seen Silver Linings Playbook and uh, Hangover. Oh, yeah. The hangover, hangover Connection, the producers on this movie, the 2018 version, including Bradley Cooper, including John Peters, who yes. produced the Barbra Streisand version. So he must have had maybe the rights. I've never looked into 
what kind of input he had on this version, but mm-hmm. he got his sticky fingers in there <laughs> uh, in this new version. And Todd Phillips, who was the director of all three Hangover yeah, that's movies. That's nuts. So he's a longtime friend of Bradley Cooper and helped get this movie that's made. so cool. Similar to the previous movie, the Streisand one, they uh, filmed a real-life performance or a concert at the Coachella Festival mm-hmm. in 2017, and apparently that was the first shot for the movie. I'm not sure if it's the scene where he... Well, it's got to be one of the outdoor scenes, so I think right. later in the movie... Where she's part of his band. Yes, I think it's during, like, Always Remember Us This Way. Yeah. I was won over by this movie right away. I didn't go into it with any high or low expectations. I think, if anything, I was kind of hoping it would suck. (laughs) (laughs) Just to be like, how dare this handsome, multi-talented actor think he can now direct a movie? And then, just, like, within the opening frames, I was like, oh, man, this movie looks so good. And the cinematographer is uh, Matthew Libatique, who has been the director of photography on most of Darren Aronoff's movies. Oh, no kidding. I was super impressed by the footage in this movie. Like The, the concert, concert footage. footage is unbelievable. It you know, throws I said, you right in the center of the action. I was a performing musician for a number of years, and it just sucked me right in. That is amazing. Um, you know, the backstage kind of shenanigans and then this this like opening up into this like massive space of the lights and the sound mm-hmm. and whatever. And how, how overwhelming and ecstatic it is for you as a performer when you're playing so loud, your ears are ringing, right. <laughs> getting permanent damage. Here's a quote from my uh, the first hour of this movie was the best film I've ever seen. Okay, that's overboard, but <laughs> which is an, exactly right, which is an yeah. exaggeration, but it's right. that same feeling. I really loved it it moves it's it's dynamic it's just there's an electricity to it it almost Uh, reminded me of like a french new wave film it's like breathless or something like yes they are both swept up he sweeps her off her feet you know and just like the other versions she's kind of hesitant at first of like why the fuck are you courting me and once she gives in he makes these huge grand gestures to her and he delivers and she gets into it and he's so impressed her talent it's tearing up just thinking about it like, his affection for her is like infectious it's a chemistry you almost never see in films whether it was his direction or whoever wrote the script they nailed something more consistently than the other versions do the other and they nail something that flat. so many films try to nail and fail where it differs from the other ones i think it spent just the right amount of time developing that chemistry and developing their relationship and really making sure that we felt what they felt whereas the other ones sort of just breeze through it for the sake of plot yep Good. Glad we're on the same page with that. You see they have this initial uh, scene. I think he goes on stage drinking or he's been drinking in his limo and uh, he performs. He leaves and he tells his driver, who is played by Greg Grunberg, who is J.J. Abrams' good luck charm. He has appeared in almost everything J.J. Abrams has done. Apparently, Greg Grunberg was a co-star of the TV show Alias with Bradley Cooper. Oh, no kidding. That J.J. Abrams made for TV way back when. Even though Abrams' name isn't on this, he's uh, he's buddies with Cooper. Yeah. I think that's why he got this part. And he's charming and jovial. He's got the thankless task of having to drive this drunk drug addict around <laughs> and catering to his every whim. But he comes off as a positive character. He's probably driven thousands of Aimless girls around, but he recognizes that this alley girl is 
something special. He's a key player in a couple of scenes, rolling up and down windows. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. he contributes to the plot of the movie. He ends up driving him in the middle of the night, you know, after that gig to this nightclub. What is it? A bar? Yeah, it's like a gay bar, drag bar. I think you just kind of see the sign outside, maybe yeah, the lighted sign. There's like a rainbow on the front of it to indicate so, you know, it's like a gay So yeah, he doesn't even know what he's getting into. He just knows that they serve alcohol. And yeah, it turns out to be a drag bar. He doesn't seem to have a problem with it. He's chatting up a couple of the drag queens. They recognize who he is. He's yeah. that well-known star. Like, what are you doing here? And they're, they're overjoyed. And then uh, this lady comes out singing. I think you see her backstage right before she comes out on stage. Is yeah, it's like, a, it's like a back shot. She's like holding her rose, tapping nervously, and then the curtains open from the back view of her as she walks on stage. So I would consider that an echo of the beginning of the movie where you saw... Yes. Him Jackson doing the same thing. Backstage entering the venue. This is on a much smaller scale. It's more intimate. And right. she's not playing some rock and roll country number. But she's singing La Vie en Rose. La Vie en Rose, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Made famous by Edith Piaf. Grace Jones did a great version of it. But it's a standard. And, and she uh, kills it. Stunning. Yeah. It's beautifully sung, but it's also staged within the movie. Gorgeous. Like, yes. you know, this goes back to that. This is the best movie I've ever seen. Like, that sequence is utterly magical. Him being taken in by it and her like lying on the bar. You and know, they, they make it. eye contact and it's just smoldering that look they give each other. Yeah. And it's part of her performance to be flirty. It's, it's funny because later when he starts flirting back with her, she's incredulous. Like, well, that was just a performance. I just thought it was gorgeous. He's a well-established, big name rock and roller, but he is moved by her performance. Mm -hmm. It's not his genre. It's not his style, but he's moved by it. What was your familiarity with Lady Gaga? Well, I knew the hits. You know, like most people, I had kind of kept up on the periphery. Like I watched her Super Bowl performance and, you know, I liked her as a pop star. I thought she was one of the better ones around. I thought she yep. had a lot more to say than your kind of run-of-the-mill pop star. I didn't buy any of her albums or anything like that. Joanne, I kind of got into. That album was pretty wonderful. I um, have not heard that one. It's her deviating from pop and getting more into folk introspective singer songwriter she abandoned a lot of the flash and it. um it's really good it's funny with her people are often quick to compare to madonna uh, but i don't right. really see that she was I'm, more... I'm with you on that yeah 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 i don't i don't think that's a i mean it's i think it's fair to compare them i think she drew inspiration from that but i i think Ga I think, Gaga there's a, is... I think there's a little more going on and i think gaga's even more calculated. <laughs> oh, sure. When I was first finding out who Gaga was, my mind immediately went more towards Bjork. Yeah. You know, with her fair. style and her fashion yeah. sense and what she was saying artistically was more in tune with that than Madonna. Yeah, I liked those big hits. I, I thought Poker Face was amazing. When I first heard it, I was like, this is not my genre, but God dang, this is good. Paparazzi is my fave. Fantastic. I think she's a better singer than Madonna ever was. Oh, yes. She's a lot more um, musically inclined in general than Madonna. She's more musically inclined. So, yeah. There's this interesting common thread to all these movies. And, you know, I mentioned up top that if you're thinking of this as a fairy tale, the mm. ugly duckling is a common thread. Yeah. Because in every one of these movies, the female star, the up-and-comer, is told by management that, like, oh, she's not pretty enough. She doesn't have the right look. And it takes a little arm-twisting for them to see her potential value as a commercial artist just because she's a little quirky looking all these ladies are attractive in their own ways but none of them are like top 
model looking and that probably annoyed the hell out of them because i'm sure behind the scenes they were being told that all the time like uh her nose is wrong right and i think that was a big part of gaga's persona as she was dressed in these outlandish outfits to take away from the fact that people were calling her ugly so that wasn't the talking point anymore the talking point was who is that who's dressing so outrageously people had to turn and look and that's kind of how she garnered her star quality so when i picked a bunch of her singles last year for the rock solid single of the day project on twitter follow the hashtag i was surprised to see those videos again she's wearing a lot of costumes sometimes she's wearing veils or masks or stuff and then sometimes even when you see her full face she's lit in such a way it's like she and her directors were intentionally disguising her real face so it's really kind of a shock if, if that's all you knew her from to see her in a star is born where sometimes she's not wearing any makeup and she's a beautiful lady but it's interesting that that is an actual plot point of the movie like mm-hmm. the shape of her nose right <laughs> it becomes like this act out he traces her name her nose shape first and then later she does it and then she does it herself it's like flipping the bird to the industry <laughs> yeah so she does not get she i guess she does get made over she doesn't get her name changed like in the other movies but she dyes her hair at some point i guess yeah to get but even then i think orange. she i think she claims she picked it he's like accusatory of her of like oh, did they yeah. pick the color for She's like, no, I picked it. But she's also very insecure about it initially because there's that scene when we first see her makeover where she's sitting in the bathtub looking for Lauren <laughs> and her friend Ramon yes. comes yeah, and finds right. her, you know, and she's like, you're right. I don't know how I look. And he says, you look like a star. And then her face lights up, you know, her best friend. It's pretty clear that he's gay. And again, Jackson Maine never makes a fuss about it. They're best buds. And mm-hmm. Maine is completely accepting of that. I'm bringing that up only because Gaga in real life has a gay following, mm-hmm. as did Barbara Streisand and Judy Garland. <laughs> but this is the only movie that actually puts it in the text. This woman is a queer ally, and by extension, Bradley Cooper is too, by being inclusive of that. It's completely natural and normal, and yeah. that's pretty cool. This time, the, Ma- the Jackson Maine gets a male friend, yes. uh, played by Dave Chappelle. I haven't seen him in a long time. I actually saw him do, yeah, this was years ago. I, I've seen him do stand-up. Oh, okay. And, uh, in person. And I've mm-hmm. some of his Netflix specials. And that dude is a changed man from his old TV oh, show. Yeah. He like, was pretty... I loved. I loved his Comedy Central I did too. Series, it was great, yeah. But he's changed a lot as a person, um, mm. physically and like yeah. personality-wise. It's a polite way of me saying I, I don't care for him as much yeah, as yeah. I used to. I don't know why he this movie. It's implied that he's a retired musician who was maybe bandmates with Jackson Maine back in the yeah. day or something. They allude to like, oh, you know, the crazy times we used to have together. But he finds Jackson Maine like passed out on his sidewalk in front of his house. <laughs> in front of his house. Yeah. his house. And in the course of this sequence of events, like Jackson decides to propose, to, propose to, to Allie. Allie. What makes a makeshift makes a ring, ring out, out of, of like a guitar string. string yeah. Which I can verify that that would be. Very difficult Painful. to do. I've seen, wouldn't that like slice her finger open as he's trying to put it on? I'm more concerned about like the actual wrapping and constructing of oh, it. Oh, okay, that, yeah. That the ends of guitar strings when you cut them like that are really harsh. It would be really painful to create that thing. <laughs> um, but so once again, just like in all the other previous versions, they have this secret wedding and they do it in a church. And I guess later they tell her father. Oh, I guess we didn't really talk about the, her father that much. Yeah, um, Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, in fact, he's next on the list here. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but Chappelle's only in that one 
sequence. Am I right? Yeah. yeah, I wonder if he's like buddies with Cooper too. Like I'm not against the character being in the movie, but why is it Dave Chappelle? <laughs> but then again, he hired Andrew Dice Clay to be the father. So that's a common thing. Steven Spielberg does that a lot. Casts comedians to be bit parts. But Andrew Dice Clay is the father. You actually get Ali's last name, which I think is Campagna. He's in the movie a fair amount. He's got a limo business and he's got his various buddies hanging out at the house or whatever and she lives with her father still and he thinks she's a great singer and he's supportive of her going out and making it he claims that he used to sing as well as frank sinatra yeah. and <laughs> well, he alludes to that several times <laughs> which is like a weird aside yeah. um he gets mad later on when uh, jackson maine fucks up some stuff and yeah you know, he's mad at this guy who married his daughter and is like you know you're letting us all down kind of thing and i think after that whole uh, grammy debacle mm-hmm. i guess i'm jumping the gun but he's the one who shoves jackson maine into a shower and turns the ball on to try to get him to clear his head he's there as a supportive role for the daughter, which itself is kind of a callback to that first 37 version where the grandmother right, was the right. only one in the family that believed in the young lady's dream. That's one of the things I also really loved about this one is there's there's callbacks to all three previous versions. Yeah. At some early scene, Ali Gaga is wearing this Yes <laughs> concert yes. t-shirt. <laughs> which they I was so excited about. to me that someone her age, her generation, would have a Yes tour shirt. I know. A 1978 tour. <laughs> Unless she it was like her born. dad's old shirt or something like that. That's all I could probably think of. Yeah, my eyes lit up and I was like, whoever the costume designer was for this movie, thumbs up. That's yeah, cool. Exactly. Because yeah. the only message I could really get out of it was that by having the word yes, while she's trying to shut down this new suitor who's like totally gaga pun intended (laughs) (laughs) even though she's kind of holding him at arm's length of like why are you so into me inside her is this positive message of yes let's do this yes i want to succeed her mouth says no but her heart says yes yeah exactly right my hope was like Oh my God! Is she like a prog rock fan? I know, me this too. It's gonna turn into like that would be so rad. He's doing his country rock alt mainstream stuff, and then she's out there playing move I, solos. I was just gonna say, I would love if she like walked out with like a with like a, a shimmery cape and a <laughs> stack of eight keyboards and starts noodling. <laughs> right. right, right, right. What is the music that's going? On? Because the second half of this movie didn't completely convince me because she becomes her own musical entity and the new music she's making has no relationship to what she was doing earlier in the movie when she was collaborating with Jackson. I thought maybe it was first it was a character inconsistency. In the beginning she was all about being authentic and then in the second half she was all about artifice. Also you could interpret it as that the producer who finds her and, and signs her forces her to sell out in a sense. I believe his name is Red. In a break from the previous versions of this movie, this record producer is not Jackson main producer who takes her under his wing. He kind of steals her right. from Maine. Maine's actual manager is Sam Elliott. And he's an interesting character because he's fulfilling the manager role, but also kind of the friend, kind of the press agent, though, because he rejects him also. It's very complicated. And in fact, this is the only version of the story where the Jack 
slash Norman main character is given a backstory. He's given a diagnosis of mental illness. He's given a diagnosis of uh, of tinnitus, a tinnitus illness. with the, with the ringing in the ear. It is. So he's the most complex, most developed of any of these movies. He is the lead of the movie, and the movie is his story. Right. Even though we spend a lot of time with Gaga. Especially in that second half of the movie, it's more about him. Or I understood his story more than I understood her story. What is her career goal? What is, you know, because like right. some of her songs when she's performing solo sound like, you know, Elton John ballads. But then other songs are like these dance pop. Yeah, so, kind so of I think booty, booty shaking music. Right. Is it a condemnation of pop or is it almost like a rallying cry for women to have more agency in their career choices? Right. I didn't quite get what they were trying to say there. We're talking about how the first half of this movie is really great and the second yeah. half is good, but not as not as moving, not as involving, but right. but that section basically is where she's like performing with Jackson as a new member of his band and they seem to be collaborating in right. the studio. And, and did you just skip over Shallow? <laughs> <laughs> oh, did I? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> How could you do such a thing? <laughs> oh, my God. You're right. Um, well, duh. Oh, God damn. That, that, that's the whole... That's the that's cornerstone the of the entire movie. That's the whole follow-up to the... Well, the whole follow-up to the drag bar is that they yeah. hang out at the grocery store, and they write the song together, basically. You know, he sings him these verses while he, she's like nursing her hurt hand yeah. with frozen peas because she punched somebody, which is a reversal of what happened in the Christofferson version. In this case, she punches the over Ellis mm-hmm. fan. <laughs> That's a magical scene, the parking lot scene, but then later the performance drags oh, her on stage. My heart. You see all the, you see all the hesitation, you know, on, mm-hmm. on her face. And I guess her buddy Ramon is there with her and he's kind of urging her on like. And then she just you know. kind of collects herself and brings it all and then lets it all out in that amazing performance. Yeah. A snippet of that was in the trailers, but I hadn't heard the rest of the song. <laughs> and so it was really pretty mind boggling. To see that on the big screen, to and see just, that whole and that whole crescendo and from when she was backstage getting a little nervous, and the, how that explosive climax of her "I'm off the deep end." It's just, oh man, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so good. It is, of course, unrealistic to think that he would arrange an entire song <laughs> and arrange that, and then right. she sings it perfectly. But um, I'm willing to you know, have a little. I can I, I suspend just any disbelief that, for sure. I suspend disbelief. Yeah, yeah, because. Yeah. It was just a great music moment. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, but, if anything, that's yeah. what's going to truly stand the test of time from that film is that scene. That's going to probably go down as one of the recent film great moments. That connects us back to like Sam Elliott and basically this yeah. like middle of the movie because she becomes a, like a viral hit on YouTube or something because mm-hmm. all these people yeah. are filming <laughs> her, her debut performance. And I guess Sam Elliott, the brother manager, is there and you know he's convinced like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, this little lady's got some talent. She gets kind of swept up on onto Jackson's train, let's say, and, mm-hmm. and she supporting him the earlier movies or is definitely the first on the 37 version had a similar arc where there's this little sweet spot where the two of them are making movies together there's this idea of like this hollywood power couple oh and we find out this like backstory that sam elliott and jackson maine used to perform together as musicians as a yeah. music duo and sam um, elliott's character was so jealous of jackson's natural musical abilities and his star qualities that it was hard for him to become the manager because that's not what he wanted he was envious right basically around this time jackson maine kind of loses control of Allie. not that he was trying to control her but she moving her in her own direction he does not get or seem to like the new music she's making <laughs> And she seems to be having her own problems with the record label and her management defining her image. There's this whole deal made of her rehearsing with dancers for this uh, 
showcase performance. And then when the performance happens at the last minute, she tells the dancers not to come on stage. So she performs alone. Her producer is like, all this time and money we spent rehearsing this and you just made this decision without consulting me. So she seems to be having her own kind of conflicts. I didn't feel like that storyline was as developed. And it made it confusing when they had their big fight in the bathtub. He starts criticizing her for the song and she starts defending it. It felt a little bit out of character yeah, for her. Because she's kind of saying like, oh, this is my art. This is my voice. I'm, I'm doing my thing. Right. But, but we already wasn't. saw that. Like, yeah. Kind of being. Unless she yeah. was brainwashed that hard by the industry, but I didn't see that as I didn't being the case. Either. Speaking of bathtubs, that fight scene is a mirror reflection of an earlier bath scene where they're canoodling in the bathtub and she's uh-huh. putting makeup on him, which is another drag friendly. Yes. And what they also gesture. did that in the Barbara Streisand version. She had the a scene. Version. Yeah, where she's putting makeup exactly. on him. So, yeah, Which was poking holes in, in conventional masculinity. Yeah, good point. Which itself is a reference to the makeover that the studios were putting the actresses through in the first movies. Mm-hmm. It's like a role reversal nod to like, I'm going to put makeup on you whether yeah. you like it. Right. So it's really, it's sad to see this later bathtub scene with arguing and he's being a real jerk, frankly. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he goes so low as to actually call her Ugly. Ugly. And that's what really sets her off. And then she kicks him out of the bathroom. So she's like this new recording artist. Gets a billboard. She is going to the Grammys. And Jackson's performing there. We kind of. The, yeah. The urinating already, right? Yeah. Um, it's a devastating scene. Because she is. is so happy. And and we do get a quick performance of Oh Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison as performed by Brandy Carlisle. Okay. Yeah. I played in bands when I was in my 20s. And mm-hmm. we had this tiny little rehearsal space. And I had a lot of ringing in my ears for years. It was pretty frustrating, especially since one of the most enjoyable things is to crank up your guitar and be right in front of the amp and like feel the vibrations coming out. Yeah. And if you do that too much, you're going to start losing your hearing. I thought that was a really good scene of, mm-hmm. of him having to play guitar, supporting for somebody after he thought he was going to be singing lead because he kind of gets demoted. And so fucked up, he's almost catatonic at that point. He's almost catatonic, and I really thought he was going to screw it up, frankly. I did, too, yeah. Like, that was like a tight wire <laughs> yes, scene. for that sure. Man on wire scene of like, oh, man, he is going to – because so, his guitar is so loud, they make a point of that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, man, he's going to play that riff? Like, that's a pretty simple riff. But then again, you could really screw that up. But he plays through the whole thing great without embarrassing himself. He's But, yeah, but he's like nodding off. It's a great sequence, it and is. I kind of forgot about it. I, I, don't, I didn't give it enough uh, notice the first time. It's sad how depressed he is at that Grammys. He can't enjoy his wife's success. Right. Too much bitterness about and that it. That was the yet, only one, I think, where he didn't try to deliberately thwart her success. Yeah, he almost like goes on stage as an innocent little kid, like, yeah. hey, you know, there's Allie on stage. What's she doing? Like, right. oh, wow, there's my wife. So he's just kind of going up there innocently to like kind of join in the fun. Yeah, he's so out of it. And the award is presented by pop star Halsey. Yeah, I don't really know her. She had a pretty big hit last year, Without Me. It's actually a really good song. Yeah, yeah. He gets thrown in the shower by the Dice Man and he gets sent to rehab. And and tragically, that broke my heart in that scene where he gets thrown in the shower. How she's being held back and she's yelling, that's my job. Like that was so sad. Ah, Yeah, yeah. There's some good sequences in the rehab. 
center mm-hmm. with him and he talks about some backstory stuff i think he even talks about his hearing loss problem and that, that, yeah. it, that it's a chronic condition that really has no cure except to not play loud music or mm-hmm. always with hearing devices yeah chris christopherson never goes into rehab in a departure from the other versions for some reason and he probably needed it the most of any of them <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> are you familiar with the term poptimism I've heard it. So this relates to what we were saying about the difference of music styles between Alley and X and Maine. I was trying to look up the exact definition of this, and the Wikipedia page is actually called Rockism and Poptimism. This is actually a good mm-hmm. example with Fitz's movie perfectly. Jackson Maine represents rockism, authenticity, down and dirty, rock and roll, guitars. That's rockism. That's all philosophy. Mm-hmm. And then Poptimism is you'd rather listen to Madonna than the Rolling Stones. Right, right. And the idea that a great pop song captures something in it that is not available in other music. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's light. Yes, it's disposable. But it has heart and it has beauty. It's crafted right. You can dance to it. You can meet someone, connect over it. Whereas rockism is more like you're sitting down having a beer, growing your beard, (laughs) listening to the guitar solo. But... the, the basic tenet of optimism is to like, no, don't dismiss this music as garbage. You know, some things are better than others, but th- th- there's a value to that. And that led me to a movie I liked very much last that I think maybe left you cold or meh, which okay. was Vox Lux. Oh, yeah. I really liked the aesthetics of the movie. It was pretty harsh. Yeah. Um, in some of its like social commentary. But it just ended with this completely joyous concert. I was like, God, I wish that A Star is Born had had that for Gaga. You saw like an extended sequence of pop music. Rather than the schmaltzy Diane Warren song we get at the end. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Did she write that? She did. It's like the Diane Warren-iest of Diane Warren songs. (laughs) Right. It's my least favorite song in the film. I felt like those two movies, in my mind, they were communicating. I just spoke for a while. Do you have something next on your notes? My last note that I had really was like the callbacks to all the previous versions, in particular the one that that struck me as the most touching, I thought, was actually at the beginning in the credit sequence when Gaga's walking down the alley. You know, there's a there's a connection there. Singing, I singing did the, not. What song is she singing? singing. Oh, she's I singing the opening bars of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Is she? Okay. It's like the preamble version that they often cut off. From uh, really? Yeah. And the only okay. reason I recognize that is back in my music days, when people do recitals and stuff like that, a lot of them would do Over the Rainbow, but they would include that opening section. I love that it was just subtle enough for people who were kind of in the know would know that that's a Judy reference, but it wasn't immediately obvious. And it, it yeah, I read made my that, but I did not bit. audibly recognize it. I think a reason that Gaga's performance works so well in the film is because she's new to the, to the acting world. It, it feels very devoid of ego, which is very different from the other performances in the series. She's funneling her insecurities into a authentic feeling and very real performance i tend to agree with you because i seem to recall on the press junkets for this she was always very same, effusive yeah. about how thankful she was to cooper for there could giving be her 99 people in the room and there's that one or whatever she kept saying <laughs> <laughs> right right um uh, so yeah maybe that is true maybe that is honest i was blown away by her in this movie here's another minor criticism i found the geography confusing yes that's <laughs> this true. Movie. you know i went on twitter shortly after this saw this movie and saw that there were a handful of other people who were confused because it seems like 
and, and it's it's largely because of Andrew Dice Clay. It seems like the movie starts in New York City. Yeah. I, in my mind, when you first see his house and his buddies and stuff, like he's talking in this New York accent. I'm pretty sure Gaga is from New York. So I was thinking like, wow, taking these private jets, <laughs> all this movie from <laughs> New York to L.A.? And then some people verified that grocery store that they have that hangout at is – in L.A. This is all taking place in L.A. They're flying into Arizona, whatever, but Coachella, California, so there's no New York stuff going right. on here. Oscars. Eight Oscar nominations, one only for the song Shallow. Did it clean up at any, even the Globes? Maybe? No. I think even the, the Golden Globes, we were putting this off till later to talk about Bo Rap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Green Book. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that maybe maybe let's not get into it. But yeah. I liked this movie better than either of those, and even better than that were things like Beale Street and oh my whatever. God. But but I would have been happy and satisfied. If Star is Born had won any of those big awards for acting, for directing, whatever. That song is great, so I'm happy that that song won. My favorite song in the film is I'll Always Remember Us This Way. Yeah. You know, and so people uh, yeah, theorize, like, was there a backlash? It but just seemed like the public just totally shifted their view on it. Universe praised by critics. And, mm-hmm. and, and the, it is the general and for, public. And, and, yeah, consider, I was going to say, considering how dark some of it is, it's a crowd-pleasing movie. Do you want to get into, like, the spoilery stuff now? Listener oh, my alert? God, we did it! <laughs> we talked this long without even about the ending the ending oh my of God. all these movies jeez i was ready to wrap up but you're right so if you have not seen it? the movie turn it off now <laughs> oh yeah right the lead actor the main spoiler, character and spoiler, spoiler here we go we are now entering a spoiler spoiler zone. territory he kills himself <laughs> there i said it yes um, he dies <laughs> <laughs> he dies because he is a star. One star is born and the other one dies. He dies at the end and uh, he does the stint in rehab, comes out clean. It becomes a new beginning for the couple. She, the heroine, you know, who's doing well in her career, decides to kind of put her career to the side and take care of her husband. In most of the cases, a uh, producer or press agent or someone like makes a comment of like, well, no, you shouldn't give up your career for him. He's a screw-up. And tells him, you realize your wife is giving up her career for you, you loser? Like, you've become an albatross around this star's neck. Like, he takes it too far. Right. (laughs) He's like, I went through rehab. I've been screwing up. My career is dead. I have no clout in, in Hollywood or in the industry anymore. And my wife is willing to make this huge sacrifice for me. I don't want her to do that. How about I just leave the picture entirely? Which yeah. itself is an incredibly selfish move. Oh, totally. <laughs> it's crushing to her. <laughs> and uh, and then the follow-up scene is, I think all four of them have a version of this too, where she goes out on stage at some event and announces herself as Mrs. Norman May. Esther Hoffman Howard. Yeah. So she hyphenates her name, and then for Gaga, it's Ellie Main. Exactly. And then performs a song that he wrote. So it's very moving, and it's this idea that she's not going to give up, but right. she's paid this horrible price. 
the particular deaths, the only one that's maybe possibly not a suicide was the uh, 76 with Barbara Streisand because he crashes his car. I'm presuming it was intentional. In the first two movies, he drowns himself. And then in Gaga's version, I think he hung himself. Yeah. Like it kind of is a long-winded scene. Yeah. Because he had made mention of hanging earlier when he was in rehab talking to his therapist. He basically says that, yeah, I tried to hang myself once when I was a kid. He hangs himself in his own garage after feeding his dog while his wife is playing a huge show. That he's supposed to be at. He is expecting him to appear to sing Shallow together. So the whole time he's like despondent, planning, you know, drinking or whatever and setting up this hanging apparatus. His wife is backstage or on stage or whatever, you know, like freaking out like, where is he? Where is he? It's heartbreaking. Second time I saw this movie was on video with my parents uh-huh. <laughs> and my brother and his wife and whatever. Uh, it, this was over Christmas. It's chugging along. It's nice and romantic. And there's a couple like little nice see make out scenes. Oh, no. <laughs> I know where this awkward. is going. It's always awkward to watch this yeah. sexy with your parents. Yeah. But no, um, no, it's not that. It's that somewhere during this last act of the movie, mm-hmm. my sister-in-law got up and was like, I think I know where this movie's going. I don't need to see that. I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> oh, so geez. she did not – she did, she timed it perfectly, which to me, the first time I saw it, that it was frankly a surprise because I didn't remember – I didn't know the story that well. Oh, yeah. I have a complaint in general about death in movies. Like I feel like <laughs> is overused in movies. There's way too much killing. Yeah. And there's way too many – just – general you just is in all the genres but you know mm. particularly in action movies obviously but i feel like it's kind of a cheap story device to have a character die yeah it's manipulative yeah i think you probably could make a version of this movie where the guy doesn't kill himself they just get divorced why does he have to die i guess in australia or something like that they had to add like a trigger warning <laughs> really to this wow movie, like post-release because people were you know uh upset way to spoil and, uh, it right out of the gate <laughs> yeah well right yeah i don't well, with good reason though yeah yeah john newton howard john newton howard norman uh, norman howard Chris, yeah. Chris yeah crashes his sports car it's not clear whether he intended to do it or not i think he also was driving to a gig after he's dead she finds a tape that he recorded of a song he was working on and that's the song that she sings at the end of the that's similar to what happens in the Gaga version. He had an unfinished song that she heard, and she was really excited about it, and she ends up turning that into like a tribute to him. But the first two, the guy walks into the ocean, drowning himself. And that led me to ask, is that an efficient method of killing oneself? Not at all. It sounds excruciating. <laughs> right. But it makes for really dramatic and powerful filmmaking. Yeah, there's certainly a poetry to it. And there's like common phrases like, Oh, go jump in the lake. Why don't you... Jump in a lake, right, right, or take take a long walk off a short pier. Yeah, <laughs> but I, it makes me wonder if like drowning was a more common way of death than it is in current day, because I don't know if people do that anymore. But yeah, it has like a poetic returning to the blissful womb of the ocean, right. um, <laughs> the embryonic uh, fluid, <laughs> while the you know, sinking to the depths while your wife is soaring to the stars not to joke about suicide which right, we are maybe right. we need to put a trigger warning on this i maybe <laughs> I'll, I'll add one to the description but, um but uh that seems like a particularly miserable way to die on that note yeah do you want to talk about favorites and least favorites yeah or so do you get back to the list 
I was thinking first, your favorite leading man. Yeah, I'm going to say Frederick March. Me too. I mean, Bradley Cooper's probably number two. Yeah. I do find his affected voice kind of taxing at yeah. times. <laughs> I can see that. I found him immensely likable, and I was, you know, God damn it, Bradley, like, the guy can sing. Yes, <laughs> I know. There's nothing this man can't do. He's um, the male he, Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> he is really handsome. I think he looks really great in yeah. the movie with the beard, the hair, and stuff. Like, I really liked him, yeah. and especially when he acting like a dick. Like, I found him <laughs> an, an entertaining drunk, but when I saw the Frederick March, like, he is charming as all get out. Yeah. yeah, I agree. He gets my vote, too. How about favorite female lead? Ah, jeez. That's a tricky one. Yeah, I have a feeling you're going to say Judy, but I guess I'm going to say... My vote goes to Judy. Okay. She is doing all the heavy lifting in that movie. That is for sure. Yes, and that lifting is very heavy in that movie. Um, If you took out all the musical numbers in that movie, would you have a solid drum? Yeah, I don't know. know, That's interesting to think about. Yeah, I'm not against that. Uh, Mm -hmm. I found Janet Gaynor really charming if a little too meek at times yeah the first one but i'm gonna say gaga just because i want to be a booster for her to make more movies right yeah i like that i like it a lot um favorite song from the series um you know just since i listened to the carnegie hall record the the man that got away is pretty fucking sweet mine too yeah that that's my number one shallow well Shallow's up there, I, too. I do like Shallow's great. Uh, most Convincing Romance. That's probably an easy one. Is it? Oh, oh, geez. Yeah. No, no the new one. Yeah. Same here. Oops. The Gaga Cooper. I think I looked at the credits for the writer, the screenwriter, mm-hmm. and I he's written some big things, but nothing that really uh, jumped out at me. But yeah, somebody put some good work. I'm sure there's just some chemistry between them as actors, but they were both given good things to do. Yeah. It was like, completely other, fully yeah. realized. Yeah. Favorite award show debacle scene. <laughs> <laughs> I liked the one in the 37 version because it was seemed kind of fresh to me and I liked the idea that the Oscars used to be this like, you know, dinner just of professionals in some like hall somewhere, some yeah. rented hall. Wasn't televised or whatever. And he gives some crazy angry speech and he accidentally punches his wife in the face. Right. I, I don't know. I, th- 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 there was something comical about it. That's just the one that stood out for me recently. Well, yeah. What about you? I think for me, it's the newest one. I find it the most <laughs> affecting. I find it deviates from the, the other ones in, in terms of his intentions. Yeah, and you really feel her embarrassment. Yeah, I kind of put myself in her shoes of like, wow, this person I love is really making a fool of himself mm-hmm. and, steal, and stealing the spotlight from me. Yeah, I don't think he even meant to do it. I don't I think, think he's he might consciously I think he came from like a, a, a place of love ultimately because he was up there really to support her. The other ones came from places of, of anger and bitterness. Right. The early ones had that version of like uh, either I should be winning an Oscar for a worst performance. I think in the Frederick March one, he's, you know, he he says like, hey, I won one of these Oscars once way back in the good old days. But, you know, and then mm-hmm. I should I deserve a worst Oscar now. And basically he kind of curses out the whole industry and the whole awards show stuff. So which, again, like I thought that was kind of prescient, even in the 30s. <laughs> Hollywood was already kind of cynical about uh, and critical of its own industry. Yeah, I'll stand by my decision, but I, I like your pick better, frankly. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> For the next one, I almost said favorite death. <laughs> most, <laughs> most affecting death scene. 
<laughs> Not the Barbara. We didn't even mention that Christopherson crashes his car. I don't think you even see the crash. No, you don't. You Literally, see the aftermath. The, you kind of find out. You kind of see what's up to him. He's driving recklessly, and then you see the aftermath. And basically, she shows up. She's brought to the you know the ac- scene of the accident and like cradles his dead body. Right. It <laughs> is like pleading with him to. I don't remember. Wake what up she said. or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little overdone. Yeah. Um, not really believable or whatever. Yeah, partially because you never really believed that they were really in love before. I don't know. I'll give you my answer. The one that, that I thought was the most well done was the 37 one. Huh. And the reason is, is I, I just thought it was, like you said earlier, it was poetic. He's swimming off into the sunset and you know that his time is up and then the camera pulls over and you see, you know, the remains on the shore. It's done very beautifully. And I didn't get yeah. quite that from the other ones. Yeah, it's not really drawn out either. It's almost like, oh, he's going for a swim. Like, whoa. Right, fade right. To black. Like, what? Oh, wait yeah. a second. Did he just do what I think he did? Yeah. Um, and Bradley Cooper's it, kind of went on and it, that was like. Let's do it already. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tired of watching you cut from, you know. I kind of want to pick that one just because of what I said earlier. I thought cutting to Gaga's expectation of her husband yeah, showing that was up cool. makes that really even more. So, pick yeah. that one anyway. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Did you want, I know you're not into ranking, so, but which one I guess is your overall favorite? I'm one of those rankers that's like, you know, talk to me next week and then the It'll change. order will be different. Yeah. Um, although I think in this case it would involved me having to see them again and as of yesterday i liked the 37 version best because it's so tight and compact it's funny and it's kind of got some razor sharp wit and it's also kind of cynical about the business um the two leads are really good and then number two would be the bradley cooper 2018 third would be garland's 54 version which i admitted i need to see again i want to see again and then the the Christopherson Streisand at number four. After this conversation, I think uh, you know I might push up the Bradley Cooper to number one because I think you made a number of really good points about how it depicts emotional bond between these two characters better than any of the other ones. The musical performances are all really well filmed, but it's long. It it's is. like two and a half hours long, I think. You know, I'm going to stick by my guns and say that 37 is number one at this point. Yeah. But I've I like seen that. it once. Yeah, I fully support once. that. It might drop later. For nostalgic value, I would ha- I would have to put the Judy Garland as number one for me. It's in my DNA. When was the first time you a Star is Born? I must have been eight or nine. And you've watched it dozens of times. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, that has I was, a lot of power. It, I, it does. And I was going to ask you, how do you feel about musicals in general, like movie musicals, stage oh, musicals? Uh, it's not really my scene. Yeah, so that that would absolutely inform your opinion on that movie because it's very much in that vein of old style Hollywood musicals. Yeah. Number two, ooh, this is where I'm struggling. Uh, the two and three slots I'm struggling with. You know, I'm gonna stick to my guns with my original opinion too and say number two is Gaga. Number three yep. is Gainer. Number four is Babs. That makes sense. Although I really the the Gainer ones, you made a great case for that one. You know, and I kind of want to watch it yeah. again too. Yeah, it is the most old fashioned of any of them. Oh, absolutely. It's also the one that maybe has held up the test of time better yeah, than them. You know what? I think you're right. Yeah. A lot of times I go into an old movie expecting it to be kind of creaky and have yeah. like outdated uh, moral values, let's say, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, just the way people would talk and acting styles That's are so swell. different now. Right. But it's a pretty charming document of that period of Hollywood history. I will say, like, even though both of us have rag on the Streisand version 
I think it is worth seeing, especially if you're going to the trouble to see the other versions. But I would yeah. not recommend it just on its own as a great movie. It doesn't. Right. It doesn't really succeed. Well, wow! I think we summed it up pretty nice. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share before I, we? I think close I got out? like I think I got almost all my notes out there, which I'm very pleasantly surprised. Yeah, me too. This was a yeah. lot of fun. Where can people find you? I am on Twitter as at cult dung one word c-u-l-t-d-u-n-g do i dare ask Dave what that what that is derived from <laughs> i yeah i was going to mention that so that's actually short for culture dungeon which was a mm-hmm. blog i had for a little while and it was based on a comment <laughs> that a, an ex-girlfriend had about <laughs> me and my roommate's uh, collection of books and records and cds and toys and stuff Oh, <laughs> every every time she'd come visit our house, there was more junk <laughs> cluttering up the you know the walls. Like because we were both collectors, we're full adults at this time, and mm. she called it oh like the culture dungeon. <laughs> That's know, great. To us, it was a library of art, but to right. her, it was a dungeon of culture. But I don't really do that blog anymore. But I thought it was a good handle. But I question sometimes whether I should use my actual name, but. There's a lot of David Finns out there, so yeah. <laughs> I probably wouldn't stand out in the pack anyway if I did that. Well, you know, follow Dave. And for me, if you want to hit me up, I have my email address, movies at rockpod at gmail.com. And you can follow the uh, Twitter account. It's at rockmoviespod is the Twitter handle. And leave us a review on, uh, well, I guess now it's Apple Podcasts. They changed it. So, um, oh, did they? They did, yeah. So leave us a review and it helps people find the show. Well, thank you so much. This, I'm going to let you go. Thanks for being so and patient oh my gosh no i'm happy to do it this was this was great have a great night dave thanks again all right all right you too